Everybody good? All right, we're going to take a look at Proverbs chapter 17 tonight, so I invite you to open up there. We'll uh, take a look together uh, at the chapter. It says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting and strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, and he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are a crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. <laughs> Fine speech does not become a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit <coughs> dries up the bones. The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So to impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his, his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time we study your word, God. And as we come to the scripture, Lord, we pray that, uh, God, you would give us insight. Lord, we seek to have understanding. We seek to uh, just dwell in the place of wisdom, God, where our eyes are firmly fixed on the prize, where we pay attention to the street signs where we hear the voice of our Savior bidding us to come follow Him. 
God, I pray that we find ourselves step for step (laughs) walking that narrow road, the path of life. And Lord, if we find ourselves making a wrong turn, finding ourselves heading in a wrong direction, God, that we would repent, turn, and put ourselves back on that path, God, that your word is calling us to. That we would not be a fool who cannot receive instruction. But rather, when we hear the instruction of your word, we conform our heart to it. And we allow you to bring that correction that our destination remains the same. Our eyes on the prize. Be glorified this evening as we look to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so as we come to Proverbs 17, again, we're still in the section of the book of Proverbs. Dealing with Proverbs of Solomon, uh, all the way through chapter 22, verse 16, we'll be in the section of the Solomonic Proverbs. And as we look at it, there's just a variety of things he's going to describe. In verse 1, uh, Proverbs 17, he's going to speak to us about the value of peace. The idea is, you know, God's Word calls us to pray that we might dwell in peace. There's nothing wrong with desiring peace. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with desiring life to have that nice, smooth flow. In fact, God says, don't be afraid to ask for it. Don't be afraid to pray for it. He says in Proverbs 17, 1, this, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Peace with little is better than an abundance with strife. So the idea he's laying forth is this concept. Poverty with peace is better. Poverty with peace, having a little and having peace is better than spending our time chasing the, the almighty value of the dollar and having our lives filled with strife. We want to pursue peace. God's word calls us that. We're looking for street signs that are declaring to me I'm on the path that God has called me to, where Jesus is saying, come follow me. Well, part of that path is a path in the pursuit of peace. Not compromise, in the pursuit of peace. To have peace is better. Then also, he he goes on to this concept that it's better (laughs) to be able than to have maybe what we would call today privilege. To be able is better than to have privilege. Look at verse 2. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. So what's he saying? A servant. Someone not naturally born into the family. Someone who does not have the right of inheritance but who lives his life wisely will be accepted into the inheritance. When he was not born into privilege, he can uh, uh, rise to privilege. We see the exact same thing happen in the life of Joseph. Remember Joseph sold into slavery? And when he sold into slavery, what happened as a slave? As a slave, he excelled, right? And as he excelled in his duties as a servant, what did Potiphar do? Raised him up in the house, didn't he? So that he was second to the, 
to the owner. He was, he was like one of his own children. And when, and when the result led Potiphar's wife to, to uh, try to get Joseph to stumble, he runs away, she accuses him of rape, and he goes to prison for something he didn't do. What happened there? As a servant in prison, what, what happened to Joseph? He was, he just went about doing whatever he was supposed to do to the glory of God. And, and what happened? The same thing that happened at Potiphar's house. He rose. Though he wasn't born to the privilege, or maybe he was where he was, but being sold into slavery removed that privilege. The concept that God's word is laying out is this. Ability and character can overcome the disadvantages of birth. Ability and character can overcome the disadvantages of birth. God's word is laying out. We can find any number of reasons why we can't be successful, why we can't walk the road that Christ is calling us to. We can wallow in our own struggle with sin and just choose to stay there, right? When the, when, the, when the prodigal son was in the pig's pen, he could have stayed there, right? He could have just laid down in the mud and gave up. But he made a decision one day that it would be, would be better to be a slave in his father's house. He made a decision one day to humble himself, no longer walk in the pride thinking he deserved more than what he had, but humble himself. And in his humility, what did God do? What he promised, which is what? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? He will raise you up. That's the street sign. Walking in pride or... You guys understand that you can walk in pride and not have anything, right? I can, I can be proud in my low station just as I can be proud in my high station, can I? I can, I can be filled with pride no matter where I find myself on the, on the scale of life. But if I will choose... To walk in humility, if I'll choose to be obedient to the things that God word, God's word lays out for us, then I can share in the same inheritance as though I was born into it. What's another example of that? How about believers walking in salvation? Who, salvation is of the Jews, right? Didn't salvation go forth to the Jew first and then to the Greek? But what happens? The, the Jew responding to the word can enter into that same inheritance, even though he's not born in that particular family. God's point and purpose is, <coughs> if we will act wisely, the servant acts wisely. We talked about that concept. What does it mean to act wisely? To act wisely means to put your eyes on the prize. Not the prize being rising myself out of my circumstances, the prize being Jesus Christ. And if my eyes are on the prize, if I'm in prison, can I arise above my circumstances? Sure. If I'm in slavery, can I arise above my circumstances? My eyes are on Jesus. Yes. We see it, we read about it occurring on the pages of Scripture, that we deal wisely, we will rule over those who are around us who perhaps had a greater advantage. The next one we see in verse 3 is the story of the refiner. We have three descriptions of the refiner. Look at it. The crucible is for silver. 
That's uh, the, uh, the concept, the, the, the tool through which silver is refined. The crucible, the fire, melting down silver to make it more pure. Everybody with me? The furnace is for the gold. What happens to the gold? Same thing. Turn up the heat, gold melts, becomes more pure. The concept is to <coughs> be purified. In the same way that silver is purified by the crucible and the gold is purified by the furnace, our heart is purified by who? The Lord. The Lord tests the heart. God is that refiner's fire in the life of a believer. So I find myself in a position where the heat is being turned up. Does that in and of itself necessitate that I am in some way disobedient to God? Not necessarily. Sometimes what God is doing is skimming off the dross, right? Just like silver is refined. What's the, what's the concept for silver? We heat up the silver till it melts and we scrape off the impurities off the top until the face of the one purifying can be seen in the reflection. Would it be any different for the believer? The Lord, as he turns up the fire in the life of a believer, what's he looking for? The reflection of his face coming back at him. How does that occur? That occurs because we as believers have our eyes on the prize. We are looking in his face. We are focused on him. That's what keeps us on the path, right? If I take my eyes off of him, the next shiny thing is where I'm going to go. Soon as I take my eyes off of the prize, I want to keep my eyes on the refiner so that he can do that, <coughs> so that he can do that work in and through me. Then in verse 4, we have a parable about, about what are we listening to? What do you listen to? What do we allow into the gates of our life through our ears? It says, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. So a wicked doer and a liar are allowing those wicked sayings or lies to be poured into your ear. There's a responsibility on the part of the hearer when someone is spreading gossip, when someone is spreading lies. There's a responsibility in terms of the hearer to stop receiving that. Great way, great way to shortcut it, great way to stop it is to stop them right there and say, let's pray. Let's pray for so-and-so, such-and-such, this situation, whatever. But the, the responsibility, the Lord is telling us, the responsibility, the street sign is the hearer is responsible for what he's listening to. Sometimes we think because we're not the one saying it, we, we bear no responsibility in the action. But in verse 4, it's an evildoer who listens to wicked lips. <clears throat> it's a liar that gives ear to a mischievous or lying tongue. So we want to beware uh, false or malicious speech. And in verse 5, he goes on, gives us a parable about mocking. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. That's interesting, isn't it? Street sign, on our path, following Jesus, eyes on the prize, keeping our eyes focused on him. Is there a place in that to mock the poor? The concept of this parable is mocking the poor or the unfortunate. 
The poor, Jesus said, you'll have with you always. That's a state, right? It's a state of being. So Jesus said, yep, you're going to have the poor. And he does not give us uh, pause to say, yeah, go ahead and mock them. God's word is, do not mock the poor. And the second one is like it. The second one, he says, don't be glad at the calamity of another. Don't rejoice in the calamity of another. In Isaiah 45, God says that he creates calamity. That God is the cause, oft times, of a calamity. Say a calamity takes place in another nation. The way it's described for us in the Bible is the judgment of Babylon that comes upon Israel, the judgment of Babylon that comes upon (coughs) Edom and the surrounding areas. And one of the reasons why Edom face the judgment of God was because Edom rejoiced in the calamity of Israel. You get what I'm saying? Edom rejoiced that God judged Israel. And and God is saying, don't, don't rejoice in another's calamity. Don't be glad at their calamity. Why? Because that God then turns that same punishment on you. Why should you... Re- we want to have the character of our king. Is everybody okay with that? I want to be able to reflect the character of my king. Jesus Christ, my king, I want to reflect his character. His word declares that he has no glory in the destruction of the wicked. That doesn't mean he won't do it. God is absolute justice. He will destroy the wicked. But he says, I don't glory in it. God doesn't celebrate the destruction of the wicked. The Bible does tell us what God celebrates. You remember? What is it that God celebrates? What happens in heaven when one sinner repents? When one sinner turns, it says, all the heavens rejoice in celebration. So we see the character of our king. What does he celebrate? He celebrates the the repentance of the sinner. He doesn't celebrate the destruction of the wicked. And so God in his parable, the street sign says, hey, this this is how it is. Now this is... This is something really probably in the last three or four years I really had to deal with because as a Marine, I often rejoiced at the destruction of my enemies. That was uh, just a, I don't know, natural outcome of, of what I was about during those years. And <coughs> I would often say <coughs> things, maybe you've said it too, well, we should just turn that entire nation into a parking lot. Turn them into a mirror, big chunk of glass, high heat and a lot of sand. But when Jonah had that attitude over Nineveh, what did God say to Jonah? Jonah, why would you want over 10,000 children who don't know their left hand from their right hand to be destroyed? Why, Why, Jonah, would you rejoice... In that judgment, which God would be right and righteous to bring. But why would you rejoice in that, rather than Jonah rejoicing that the people repented? Right? In in Jonah's story, the people repent. God uh, relents of the destruction doesn't come until later on when Nahum the prophet goes. So so we want to have we want to have the the attitude of the character of our king. We want to have the attitude of him, not mocking the poor, not rejoicing over calamity. (coughs) He goes on in verse (coughs) 6. 
provides us with a parable about the 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 uh, uh, crown of the aged is their grandchildren. Grandkids are a joy. Somehow they're a greater joy than our kids. So if you don't know that yet, you don't have grandkids yet, probably. Or maybe your kids aren't like mine. My kids, I'm just happy they survived. Grandkids are pretty fun. Rejoicing, they are a crown to the aged. But listen to how he turns it. The glory of a child is their father. The glory of the child, it literally is their parents. What is best for a child is that relationship with the parents. What is a joy for the aged is their grandchildren. What is a joy for the child should be their parents. Now, is that the way we see things today? Is that the way our culture sees things? More often than not, the, the culture portrays parents as idiots. No. And I, I would have agreed with that because when I was 16, I was pretty sure my parents were idiots anyway. And, and perhaps we all felt that way one, one way or another. But when we look at it, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that that ought to be a position that's honored. A parent should be honored by the culture, not dishonored. That the aged should be honored by a culture, not dishonored. And that's the road signs that the Lord is laying out for us in verse 6. That we would honor our aged, that we would honor our parents. goes right along with the commandments, right? Honor uh, children, uh, obey your parents, honor your mother and father, right? Which is right with the Lord. To do these things will give us long life. So we want to follow that example. That's part of the road sign. That's part of the sign that says, I'm pursuing Christ. This is what... The road looks like that we're walking on. Next, he speaks about our speech. Verse 7. Fine speech. Really, that it, it, it's kind of deceptive. The English here, it's a difficult word to translate into Hebrew. It's probably better translated, would be better translated arrogant speech. Arrogant speech uh, is not becoming of a fool. In other words, a fool bragging about his abilities or what he can do. That, that, that kind of speech is empty. Because what does the Bible say about a fool? A fool has said there is no God. Apart from God, what can we do? Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? Nothing, right? So, so we, we are empowered to do the things that we do through our relationship with him. So a fool who has no God bragging about what he's able to do with no God is worthless speech. That's what he's laying out for us. This kind of speech, arrogant speech, <coughs> is not becoming of a fool. Still less, even worse than that, even worse than the arrogant speech of a fool, is a lie on the lips of a ruler. There is a sense in which the way God has orchestrated society, there are roles. There are roles within the family, between a man and a woman. There are roles in the nation. And as we look at those roles, whether a man or woman holds the seat of those roles, specifically in government, God holds them accountable. They are, does not require that they believe in God, but they will be accountable to God. 
a king, every single king of Israel was accountable to God. Yes or no? A wicked king did what? Was disobedient to God, right? Was full of lies, deception, murder. He did not do what things God required. How was a good king judged? A good king walked in the ways of his fathers before him. He walked in the ways of David. He was obedient to God's word. He followed God's teaching. So a lying king is worse than a bragging fool. The street sign that the word of God lays out for. So as a, <coughs> as a ruler, we don't want to be uh, full of false speech. So that, that ruler, guys, we can, we can look at uh, a ruler as those in charge of our nation, or we can look at that ruler as those in charge of our family, or those who sit in authority over our children, or any number of, of levels of authority which God has set. A liar, someone who speaks lies in a position of authority for God is worse than a bragging fool. We don't want to be that. We want to make sure that we steer clear and we hear, hey, man, that's a, that's a street sign I want to watch out for. I don't want to find myself veering down that road. Now, verse 8 is a little tricky. It says, a bribe is like a magic stone or like a charm. <coughs> a bribe is like a charm that always works. In essence, that's what this is laying out. A bribe is like a charm in the eyes of the one who gives it. It's something that he hopes in. And that bribe, that hope, that charm always works. Someone who lives by the bribe lives by turning uh, the eyes of those in positions of authority to look the other way, they will cling to the charm. It's not walking following the king. It's clinging to the charm. Are you guys tracking with me? They're holding on to, hey, I, I, I just know in order to do business these days, this is how I have to do it. Anybody ever heard those words? This is how I have to do business now. This is the way I have to, you know, everybody cheats on their taxes or everybody lies on these forms or everybody. It's the same thing as holding on to that bribe as though it were a charm bracelet. And as long as I wear this charm, the guy I, I have power over, he'll do whatever I want him to do. It's having your trust in, in, in things that, that are not other than wisdom, other than Doing it God's way. It's trusting that I have to do this through a magic spell or a, or a charm bracelet. And that's where my hope is. That's where my hope is. He puts all his hope and says this way, this path, this thing always works. Wherever I go, as long as I have this, wherever I go, it's going to work out. It'll happen. It'll, it'll come together the way I want to. His eyes, his trust is not where it ought to be. Now the next section of Proverbs 17 is built on four collections. They kind of blend together. The ideas of the Proverbs kind of come together. Uh, so I'll try to lay those out like that. The very first collection is verse 9 to 13. And it says this, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. Point number one. 
Whoever covers an offense seeks love. The graciousness of forgiveness. It begins with this statement. There is great graciousness and forgiveness. What does forgiveness look like? Someone who is looking to cover an offense. To cover meaning they, they want that uh, offense reconciled. They're not taking that offense and spreading it. That's going to be the comparison that we see <coughs> in a moment. So we have compared the graciousness of forgiveness with the irrationality of the fool. Look at the next part. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So you have two examples. One, being willing to forgive. Or two, taking that issue and spreading it around. That's what it means to cover. To cover means to take an issue, keep it biblical. What does that mean? If you have aught with your brother, who are you supposed to deal with it? With your brother, right? How? One-on-one, right? One-on-one. And it escalates from there based on how things are received. But the goal is one-on-one, cover the matter, and it's over. Compared to the fool who does what? Takes the matter and spreads it. Spreads it. The, the example we have, right, in the life of Noah, he had two sons that were willing to cover the nakedness of their father and one son who wanted to spread it, right? One son runs around to tell the tale, hey, guess what happened? And two sons who are looking to cover it. This is the example that we have here. So one gracious forgiveness being compared with the irrationality of a, of a fool. What's the fool want to do? The fool wants to spread the matter around. <clears throat> then he moves into what just punishment looks like. Okay, so we have the graciousness of forgiveness, the irrationality of the fool, and just punishment in the middle. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. It's far better, the concept in the middle... The fool spreading it, is that, is that work any correction? If a fool takes the matter and just spreads it everywhere, because there was no rebuke, there's no understanding, no opportunity for two brothers to be unified. You guys see what he's saying? But if you rather say, you know what, I want to pursue reconciliation, I'm going to rebuke my brother. It's rebuking a brother of understanding is better than a thousand whips on the back of a fool If I pursue that, there's peace, the graciousness of forgiveness. The graciousness of forgiveness brings us into that just punishment. Then, in verse 11, the chiastic goes back to the behavior of the fool. Look at it. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. An evil man, a man who's not on the road, not following life, what is his goal? Constant rebellion. Constant rebellion. So a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Someone to say, hey, this is a, this is a rebel. Look at verse 12. So let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Anybody ever run into a she-bear robbed of her cubs? That's bad, just in case you didn't know. <coughs> I've run into a couple of bears... And usually my first look is, oh, cool, a bear. And then my second look is, where is there more? What bear? Because all the bears I seem to find are little. So it makes me nervous. Yeah, is, is mom behind me? And I just don't know it. 
I don't want to meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs, neither do I want to meet a fool in his folly. Far better to reconcile, to cover a matter, to deal with a matter, and through rebuke see friendship restored. This is the point. Then in verse 13, we go to the opposite of what it is to forgive. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. On one hand, you have the graciousness of forgiveness. On the other hand, you have, again, irrational retaliation. If someone tries to do good and you do evil because they did good, God says, yeah, that's evil is not going to leave. What are you sowing? What do we sow? What does the Bible say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he also reap. So if I'm sowing evil, what should I anticipate to harvest? Evil, right? If I'm sowing forgiveness, what should I expect to reap? You guys see the difference? So we want to follow that example. Pay attention to the road sign. Second collection. <coughs> Verse 14 to 19 is a collection about quarrels. You have uh, uh, two brackets in the beginning and the end dealing with quarreling. So let's talk about quarreling. In verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. How many times do we tell one another, I'm just venting. I just need to spew all my muck on you. Which can oftentimes lead to a quarrel, right? Especially if the person you're spewing on gets defensive. So what is it that God's word says? What's his street sign to us? He says, the beginning of strife is like letting off water. Stop letting off water. You're trying to let off a little, and what happens? All of a sudden, you got a flood. All of a sudden, you got a flood, and a quarrel breaks out. So the beginning, his, his discussion on quarreling, it's not about letting off steam. It's not about that. What, where, we, where ought we to take our steam? Should we take our steam to our brother... Now, I'm not saying if we have odd against our brother, shouldn't we talk to him? But should we take our steam to our brother or our spouse? Oh, I had a really bad day at work. Let me vomit it all over my wife. Is that what the Word tells me to do? The Bible says to cast my cares on whom? Him, right? He wants us to cast our cares on the Lord. Why? Because He cares for me. Is there something my wife can do about all that stress I'm bringing home? Maybe, maybe she can offer comfort. But what is it? Can God do something? It, it is, does God want to be my burden bearer? Does God want my burdens? Does he want my cares? Does he want my concerns? If I got steam to let off, where I need to let off my steam is with the Lord. Lord, here's my day. Why? Because that's what a relationship looks like. A relationship looks like somebody that you want to tell your stuff to. And somebody that you don't have to worry about robbing or breaking as a result of that. God's not going to break 
because of the flood of emotion that comes from you, is he? No. Have you ever had your spouse break as a result of the flood of emotion? Or a friend break as a result of the flood of emotion? Has a quarrel ever broke out? God says, stop it before it begins. Look at verse 15. Now he's going to focus on the perversion of justice. We don't want our actions in regard to the quarreling that we may do with one another as a result of the stress or pressure that we're under to pervert justice. Right? The Bible's clear. If my problem is with somebody else, who should I be talking to? The one I have a problem with. Okay. So here's what he says. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So sometimes I condemn the righteous in my frustration because I don't want to condemn the wicked. I didn't go have the conversation with the one I should have. I had the conversation with somebody that wasn't guilty, and I took it out on them. Anybody ever done that? So what's the Word of God telling us? Look, we don't want to justify the wicked, say what the wicked did was okay, and I'm just going to yell at my wife instead of having a discussion with them. Nope. I don't want to justify the wicked, and I don't want to condemn the righteous. Both of those are an abomination to God. I still want to be able to deal with my issues, but I want to deal with them (coughs) properly. I want to deal with them in God's way. In verse 16, he says, Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? There's going to be three uh, statements made about a fool... And uh, in his ability to, to gain wisdom, uh, he says, Why should a fool have money to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Second, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend in adversity. So a fool, why should a fool be able to gain wisdom? What was the mark of a fool? A fool said what? There is no God. So a fool doesn't care about doing things God's way, right? So why should he have any money to buy wisdom? He's not going to listen anyway. But a friend is there for the day of adversity, right? The Bible says that a, a, a friend will cover a multitude of sins, doesn't it? The idea laid out for us that a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity, the willingness to stand with us as we work our way through it. Again, coupled on the other side, bracketed on the other side, with one who lacks sense. He gives a pledge, puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. The, the Bible says that we aren't to do that. So he's saying here, a fool won't listen to wisdom. On the other side, it is one who lacks sense. He's going to do whatever he's going to do. He's not paying attention. Fool's going to do whatever he's going to do. He's not paying attention. Who's the guy in the middle? A friend who loves at all times. Yeah, sometimes we'll do it right. Sometimes we'll do it wrong. Right? But a friend will love at all times. A friend is a, like a brother born for adversity. Then again on the outside, bracketed with concept of quarreling. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. The idea, whoever loves transgression, whoever loves to continue to walk in that which he knows is wrong, loves strife. He's looking for a fight. 
How is he looking for a fight? The same way a man who makes his door high is seeking his destruction. What does that mean? Well, people made their doors high. That big door meant I had a lot of big stuff. So I needed a big door to keep all my big stuff. It was an announcement to all the thieves. Hey, I got some really big stuff behind my big door. So I'm just going to make my door big. I want everybody to know I got a lot of big stuff. God says, you make a big door, you're just asking for someone to break it down. Hey, let's get on another side of that door. He must have something good. That is the same attitude as a man who loves to continue to walk in transgression. Loves to continue to do that which he knows is wrong because he loves strife. He's looking for the quarrel. He's looking for the fight. The two quarrels bracketed and centered with having, uh, not having a perversion of justice. Centered in that are two fools acting wrongly and a friend who is loving always. Centered in the middle, the friend that is a brother born for adversity. So we want to pay attention to the proper Use the proper action that leads to a life of peace, not of quarreling. Our eyes are set on the prize. Collection 3, verse 20. A man (coughs) of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. So we're going to deal first with the heart and the tongue, and finally with the heart and the spirit. The heart of a crooked man does not discover good. The idea is a man's heart is bent to evil. Evil is what he'll find. He's not going to accidentally stumble on good. One with a dishonest tongue is going to fall into calamity. Where does lies and wicked behavior lead? What road? It's not taking us to the path of life. It leads to calamity. In verse 21, we have another picture of the fool. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow. Again, what's a fool say in his heart? There is no God. What's our desire for our children? That they are fools or they have faith? Do we want our children to be those who declare there is no God? We must save ourselves. Of course, we'd like to have our children walk in faith. So... The sire of a fool, the father of a fool, has sorrow. The father of a fool has no joy. The Bible says there is no greater joy than this, to know that your children walk with God. That is our desire. Again, he he caps this collection with a look at the heart. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. A joyful heart. Now, where does that joy come from? Where is our link to joy? The joy of the Lord is our strength, right? In the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy. So that joyful heart comes from being in His presence. Where does that crushed spirit come from? That crushed spirit, the the loss of our will, of our desire to go on. When we see that occur, we lose our spirit Our bones dry up and we wither. We need to stay in the presence of the Lord where there is fullness of joy. Collection number four. 
Last one we'll look at tonight, 23 to 26. It says, The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So we begin, again, with the perversion of justice. God wants justice, things to be done properly. <coughs> He's not a lover of the bribe. Verse 24, So the discerning sets his face toward wisdom. The discerning. The, the discerning in opposition to the fool. The discerning puts his eyes on wisdom. The fool has his eyes looking to the ends of the earth. What does this mean? Uh, the discerning has his eyes on the prize. Focus where I'm going. Keep my eyes on the prize. The fool is distracted by lots of twists and turns. Distracted by what's down that way. What happens if I turn here? What if I go this way? I just want to explore Everything where the discerning has his eyes on the prize. His path is straight. Verse 25. A foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Again, the idea of one who has rejected the way of the Lord. To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good. The perversion of justice. Nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. So we want to walk and do what is right. We want to walk the way of righteousness. We want to do acts that are proper and are good. How do we accomplish that? Here in Proverbs, he's saying, hey, the discerning keeps his eyes on wisdom. The fool is distracted by all the things going on around him. Here's how Paul said it. Brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead... I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? I put my eyes on the prize. And what do I do? I keep walking one foot in front of the other, straight down this road, following, in Proverbs, wisdom. In the New Testament, following Christ. Following the example of He that goes before us. Again, the personification, as we look at the personification of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, is a picture of Jesus. That's why the parallel is so good. Here are the street signs. Walk straight. The discerning keeps his eyes on wisdom. Paul would say, the discerning keeps his eyes on the prize. Focused on Christ, following him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.